everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not outside riding or running or spectating riding or running, I'm probably writing about it. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach, and you are here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk about all different types of movement and to the people that do those different types of movement. All right. That was like a eight out of 10. We're learning. Yeah. yeah Keeping it shorter. Job. All right. So what have we, what have we been up to this week? Well, as you alluded to, we uh, were spectating the world championships for cross-country Olympic mountain biking. A little bit for downhill mountain biking, but mostly just for the cross-country Olympic discipline. Yeah, they were at Mont Saint-Anne, which is uh, just near Quebec City. And yeah, it was a fantastic weekend. You know, Saint-Anne's a really iconic venue, super technical stuff, super terrifying stuff on the course. Uh, so it was really fun just kind of climbing around the mountain. I admit I was supposed to be on a rest day on Saturday, and according to my phone, I still managed to log, I think it was like 15,000 steps and six miles and like a thousand meters climbed, just scrambling up and down the mountain, just trying to watch and cheer on some of the best in the world. It seems like a very statistical day of leisure, but uh, well, we were go. all we were all comparing notes at the end to see who walked the most. I feel like your phone was a little uh, generous with some of your stats, but uh, all of my devices are generous. Mm-hmm. They're very keyed for success. But yeah, super fun weekend, and yeah, great kind of catching up with a ton of our friends. I mean, honestly, it's quite a few people who listen to this show. I ran into on the mountain, which was pretty sweet. So. Well, and we had Jen Jackson, who's been on the podcast, I think, twice now, raced yeah. um, the mountain bikes, but she was the one she was on talking about cross-country skiing a bit and sort of just transitioning into between sports, mm-hmm. uh, and she did great. That was, a, I think, maybe not her first world championships, but that was maybe the first time she's sort of on Team Canada and moving up, and yeah. Yeah, really great to see her. Actually, I think that's her first world championships. I'm going to take that back. That's the second time she's second or third time she's raced at world championship or at the World Cup. But oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, that's the difference. Uh, but yeah, clean race, and so congratulations to her. And yeah, lots of friends racing. Who else? I don't think anyone else that we've had on the podcast right. was there. I feel like that was really throwing me to the wolves to be like, and name someone else who's been there. We can name plenty. Oh, of- Kate Courtney raced, obviously. That's true, yeah. Yeah, we've had Kate Courtney on the podcast, so you can go back and get your mountain bike fix. Was there a favorite moment that you had at the over the weekend? Uh, right now, it was realizing that my camera was, in fact, found uh, yes. by someone, and I'm getting it back. So, uh, yeah. Uh, actually, so I guess that leads to one of my favorite moments. I got to interview Beck McConnell who got third in the women's race and that was super fun and then I got to interview Nina Scherter who won the men's race with his eighth world championship title um and I admit I was kind of in like a kerfuffled mode after I'd spoken to Nina and just kind of exited the press center thinking my camera was in my backpack it was not and luckily the amazing people uh in the media center found it and sent it back with one of the awesome Red Bull people so shout out to both the race organizers and Red Bull for rescuing my camera. And just the general human populace for not stealing it. Definitely, yeah. Props to all the reporters that were there that didn't steal my camera. It's a very happy moment here at the uh, Hereford Glassford home. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) um, I'm trying to think if I had a a top moment. You know, it was just, it's cool to see that like peak of the sport, right? Like that that course especially is very technical, but then also just the hills are very, very steep. You're basically climbing up the steepest slope you've ever seen and like having to think the whole time because traction's hard and you're going around switchbacks. And then you go right into like something that most people would not be able to ride down. Uh, so it's it's a true test, I think, of the athlete. So just think, cool to see the the caliber and just the different strategies and the technology and, and yeah. Yeah, really, to really me, good. the mental game for that course is just so intensive because, yeah, there's just no break whatsoever. You're either redlined climbing or you have to be so on on the descent that, yeah, mentally and emotionally, there's really no, no spot where you're like, Phew, calmed down here. So the well, mental toughness it takes. And to I pointed it out course. to you. It, it was you. You posted a couple of Instagrams of people in there, uh, like falling over and so forth. 
Uh, so, but uh, I always blank on his name. What is his name? Chris Blevins. Thank you. Sorry, Mr. Blevins. I feel like I've forgot his name before. I think so. Um, so anyhow, very talented racer. If you wa- look up his Instagram, Christopher Blevins, I think it's like Chris Blevs or something like this. You're really bad for his name. Uh, he rides for Specialized, I think, right? Yes. Uh, so anyhow, very talented in all different types of bikes. Like he has like BMX stuff he's doing and he's always jumping and manualing stuff and, and whatever. But like, you know, even this course, because again, you're just so drilled and cross-eyed, like he was climbing and like screwed up going around switchbacks and then had to run a big chunk. And I I think it was just like, it's that stuff that like, I think a lot of people don't ever get to see Mm -hmm. where like they assume that the people at the front are, are, they don't have to go that hard because they're so fit. And then, you know, they never screw up and they're never scared and they're never, you know, crashing, you know? So I think it's, it's just like, Worth, I thought it was worth mentioning that this person who, like, even I am, like, whoa, like, he is next level talented, right. you know, just even for me to see, like, yeah, he fell over going uphill, and then he got back up and carried on, right? Yeah, and he had, sure. a, he had a great race, right? And uh, you know what? On the topic of running versus riding on those things, you know, we always come back to this, and I always say it at mountain bike clinics and stuff, sometimes you're just going to be faster to get off and run with your bike. And we saw in the women's race, one woman passed three women on that same set of switchbacks because she dismounted while she still had some speed and just started running immediately and passed three women, one of whom was still actually rolling along. But you yeah, around yeah, it. it's a, the sort of frustrating thing, right? Like sometimes there's different strategies, and, so and they, I think especially when you have your cycle cross mounts mm-hmm. dismounts really down, right? It's, yeah, just sort of taking away that stress of like, hey, you know, it's not a bad thing necessarily that you're off your bike. Well, and I actually had a similar. So Ryan Leach uh, is a membership site that sort of has different videos, so you can learn how to wheelie. You can learn. So last year I did uh, cycle cross mounts dismounts. I'd love for you to check it out. It's like ten bucks. I think you can buy the course or ten bucks for the membership, and it takes you through stepwise for whatever skill you want to learn. Um, and so someone had posted uh, cyclocross is starting to st- up, and it was this really steep grassy hill with like two, not even logs, but like two humps that sort of you had to roll over. And he was sort of asking about how you would maybe ride that. And so I was like, well, I mean, you might actually want to. There's some good like wheelie, like sort of uphill mountain bike type stuff that might be good. But I was like, at some point, like I'd probably just get run up the steep hill, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know. There's there's both sides of it, right? There's the the riding skill, but then there's also just another tool in your toolbox right Mm -hmm. so on the topic of skills let's let's talk about today's guest he's all about hydration which i'm gonna say is the biggest skill that i have learned in the last year yeah and we have it's an interesting concept because like hydration is a lot like nutrition right there's a lot of different beliefs a lot of different camps a lot of different like it's pretty personalized i was gonna say and it all comes back to it depends who you are and then what you're doing and then what you're doing on that day right so yeah, so really interesting. But this came across our sort of desk, and they reached out to us actually, um, the folks over at Precision Hydration, so pre- PrecisionHydration.com. Uh, Andy Blow is the founder, and he actually is an amazing, like really interesting guy, and has a tremendous sort of consummate athlete background. So this episode is largely about his background and some really good sort of takeaways, I thought. Uh, but we do get into a bit about cramping and just some hydration um, and electrolyte type concepts uh, but what i would love is if there's something that like we start talking about as far as hydration cramping electrolytes that like piques your interest please reach out in our contact form or at molly or i on twitter or whatever you hopefully follow us on and thank you for that uh just because we'd love to have him back on and do a very specific sort of hydration electrolyte but uh it was just so much to talk to him about so we had a great conversation mm-hmm. i will also add this is you know hashtag not sponsored hashtag not an ad um and i think when we went into talking to the talking to andy we were both a little bit like okay if this turns out he's just gonna you know hit us with a ton of ad stuff the whole time and just be you know constantly promoting this thing we're we're not gonna we're just not gonna run with it but like peter ended up glowing after this interview he really loved talking to him um so yeah just wanted to put it out there that this is not a sponsored thing although we will say they have given us a great discount code so if you do listen and you are interested you can go to precisionhydration.com enter the code consummate athlete just all caps no spaces uh, and you get 15 percent off your entire order which is pretty pretty sweet yeah and i think we alluded to this episode in our Q and A mm-hmm. last week, yep. um, sort of that balance of hydration, like how much water you're drinking, and then balancing that with the salts that you have in you, right? 
Um, so we do talk a bit more about that and that is what their products are sort of electrolyte supplements to help with that. Uh, so yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. I've been sort of curious about that sort of preloading with salt and sort of putting a bit more salt, especially for people that do have cramps or people that are like really salty sweaters. Uh, we sort of talk about how it's, you know, a fairly low risk thing to try, right? Like we're just talking about potentially just a shake of salt in your in your bottle, right? Or, or a product like this. So what this. you're saying is I can add more salt to my food. Well, what we don't talk about too as much in this one, which is maybe for the future episode, is also just that uh, the how that's different, like the preloading and in-workout versus like the rest of your day, right? So that, that could be a potential thing for you is if there's a lot of salt out of the workout, how that changes hydration status going into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, again, lots of takeaways, whether you're into hydration or not, I think there are going to be lots of good stuff here. There's a bunch of multi-sport transitioning between sports. Uh, You know, when you're injured, I thought the best, one of the best things, my favorite moment in this was just talking about he got injured and couldn't run and do triathlon. So then he actually learned how to kayak and just went full gas on kayaking for a couple months while that recovered. So I thought maybe if you're injured here towards the end of the season, that might be motivation to work on pull-ups or go kayaking or Something like this. There are, a, yeah, a lot of water sports are kind of no legs required. I mean, even swimming for the most part, you can use a, you know, buoy and, sure. you know, not really have to use your legs. Uh, sup, as long as you can stand up. Well, you could, uh, kneel, you can, you could kneel on a sup. Oh, uh, true. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of water sports as like a solid injured person's game, but I kind of love that. Yeah. So hopefully you enjoy this. Again, reach out if there's something on either sides of this conversation that uh, you wanted us to cover a bit more. And yeah, hope you enjoy Andy Blow. All right. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We're here today with Andy Blow uh, and Andy's with Precision Hydration, but also just a, a consummate athlete. He is a specimen of an athlete. He's done tons of things ranging from, you know, full out Ironman uh, at Kona and, and also some uh, swim run stuff, which I'm really excited to talk about because uh, I know both Molly and myself are sort of interested in that and also terrified of it. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about that. Andy, welcome to the show and thank you so much for taking the time today. Cool. Thank, thanks for having me on, Peter. We'd like to always start just sort of, again, a consummate athlete. We like to hear what people are up to, where they've come from. So do you want to give us sort of just a, a rundown of your very extensive athletic bio and sort of where, where, you've, where you've come from and where you're at right now? Yeah, I've, I have played and participated in a lot of different sports. I'm one of those people that has probably not been really, really all that great at any sport. But I have, I've done a fair few over the years. And I, I think like most kids in, in the UK where I'm from, I started off playing soccer, football, as we call it. And that, that was my first sort of, I guess, my first competitive sport. And I think when I was younger, my dad tells me that I did say I wanted to be a professional soccer player, but was clearly not destined for that and and found out through doing cross-country running and other things that we did alongside it that I was probably better running without a ball at my feet than I was with a ball at my feet. And and so that started me off getting interested in endurance sports. And, and I did cross-country running at school level. Uh, I did uh, a little bit of swimming at a sort of low club level. But it, but then I got into, I, I went, I did a biathlon, a swim run when I was in my early teens. And it was on the same day as a triathlon. And I got really interested in the bikes. And my dad was good enough to then, you know, kind of see, see that and got me a road bike and, that's when I started to get really into triathlon, which was the sport I pursued hardest for the for the most amount of years. Uh, I ended up studying sports science at university at the University of Bath in the UK, which was a triathlon centre of excellence as well. So I got some great coaching there and got to a level where I was kind of competing at the lower end of the international spectrum for triathlon and and then that led into Xterra and it led into Ironman racing. And then that subsequently, as I, as I kind of fizzled out and got bored with that, that led into other more adventurous type stuff. Um, you know, I did the race across New Zealand, the coast to coast race, which is kind of um, cycling, kayaking and running. Um, I did, uh, I've done some surf ski racing and some downriver kayak paddling. And more recently, I've got into um, sw- uh, swim run racing, which is the kind of started in Sweden, the Otolo island to island, um, long duration swimming and running, which is which is probably the thing I'm doing most of these days. 
Wow, that's that's super impressive. There's there's two ways I want to go. I think I'll, I'll first go with your professional stuff. Did you choose that university based on its triathlon focus? Yeah, a, a lot of it was was that. Um, it, it was when I went to look at the university, they were just building a 50-meter swimming pool there, which was is, there's not a lot of those in the UK, and there certainly wasn't many of those at the time, and that was a huge draw for me because I sort of really wanted to, to get into that. And, yeah, I, I kind of also just liked... I liked the vibe of the place and I, I actually ended up not applying for any other colleges at all. I just wanted to go there. And, and that was that, and that was my mind made up. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I chose my school similar and, you know, it was, it was close to home, close to the, the races for mountain biking and, uh, you know, the riding was, it was pretty good. Right. Um, and, yeah. it's, and it's funny. I, I don't, I don't regret it. Do you regret your choice based on, on that criteria? No, not de- definitely not. Although when I look back, it sort of does fill me with horror that that's what I chose it based on. How I was going to spend a lot of my money and my parents' money and the grant money that we used to get was all really based on the fact that there was a, a decent swimming pool there. Right. <laughs> Didn't seem like the, the most rational way to decide. But at the I, time that I was, I was focused on. I guess really, I was kind of one of those people. I was, I was interested in the academics, but really, I wanted to be an athlete, and I saw it as a kind of way of pursuing that as much as i did pursuing my studies and, and maybe it, it fits better like your major i guess it makes it so it's probably permissible that you chose it that way you know with the, the physiology if you were going to go into something like economics or something and, and you chose it strictly on its triathlon uh, uh yeah you know leanings then that's maybe a little more questionable yeah yeah for sure um okay and then the other way i want to go is you know there's a lot of a lot of different movements a lot of different sports here like what is how do you pick like how do you go from swimming running and then suddenly you're skiing all of a sudden like there there has to be some middle ground here where you're a beginner in these sports like how do you how do you pick those up so quickly well the the thing was i was lucky in that although i didn't swim at a super competitive level when i was a kid i did swim at a club level so i was swimming what three four times a week i could swim all the strokes and and that kind of thing so when i when i wanted to get into triathlon as a teenager i I had that basic grounding already and i had to work a lot on my swimming to get it up to a reasonable standard but i already had the basic skill set there and the running obviously transferred the cycling i had to pick up and then from from there really it was I guess you know other other things. Well, a, a major driving factor for me, I got into the kayaking because I wanted to do partly because I wanted to do the the coast to coast race across New Zealand, which has a substantial seventy kilometer sort of downriver whitewater kayaking element to it, which you have to be pretty reasonable in a boat to undertake. But I also got a, a nasty knee injury from from doing too much you know too much hard running as a triathlete, which for which i had to have surgery and that put me on my backside for a good two or three years and one of the only things i could really do was was something like kayaking so that provided the impetus to get into that so some of it was some of it transferred across because it was stuff that i wanted to do others like the kayaking were more of a uh, i don't know something that just was was almost forced upon me but looking back that was probably quite a good thing because i had just carried on on the one track otherwise and then the swim run stuff was more of an extension when i got back into running post knee surgery but didn't want to keep running you know ironmans and marathons and stuff that just seemed like a another interesting avenue because i'd upped my swimming again and then all of a sudden this race appears where you've got to swim like 10 kilometers alongside a load of running and i thought well, that's perfect for me I'll, I'll give that a crack you know and went and did it so a lot a lot of it's just been following my nose really and serendipity right right and, and there, there must be those still like you know you grew up swimming so i guess you, you're comfortable in the water but to me the the swim run stuff just some of that open water stuff and super cold water um just seems terrifying in some ways yeah there's there's that that bit of it is probably or can be the most un, unpleasant part of it if you're not used to it I, I i remember definitely when i first started open water swimming coming from pool swimming background that swimming too far offshore was quite intimidating and and definitely when i started kayaking and surf ski racing and ocean um, sea kayaking i found it really really unnerving to be a long way off- offshore but but actually i think I think partly it was the the kayaking that helped me overcome that because as you get better at that you want to go further and you start to actually you, know, you start to get used to being in that open water environment you start to kind of love the ocean more than you're you're scared of it you've always got to be respectful of it because it can be a dangerous place but I've I've since sort of 
I guess I gradually overcame that out of wanting to do more and more. And then, and then that's, that's fed back into the, the open water swimming. The one thing I do, even though, you know, in the UK, we often have, we have to end up swimming in fairly cold water. I always struggle with that. And that's one thing that really tests me in these swim run races actually is the longer swimming sections, especially in the real cold water. That's, that's probably my least favorite part of all of it, but I guess I guess if you want to race in it, you just the adrenaline helps, and you just grit your teeth and you know put your head down and get on with it. Right? Have you? Do you wear like a thicker wetsuit, or is there any? Have you have you come up with anything for coping in that, or like even mental strategies? Like I, I am similar in that uh, we did Ironman. Mountain biking has been my main thing, but we did yeah. Ironman there two years ago, um, and definitely that was it was just the cold. It wasn't. I actually really liked open water, but the cold I just can't handle. Um, yeah so is there, the, strategy? there is there's a few things is i mean kit is one thing and ironically the so when i started doing swim run racing the technology was not there you you basically pretty much got an old triathlon swimming wetsuit and cut the arms and legs off it and, and got going and that was that was actually okay in the water because they're quite thick and buoyant but rubbish for the running and and you got too hot and it strained your hamstrings and hips because of how tight it was around your legs. So then these companies started making specific swim run rep suits. And, and obviously that's a compromise item because you want it thinner and lighter for the running, but then it's less buoyant and warm in the water. So ironically, the swim run wetsuits we use now are significantly thinner and lighter. Um, so one, basically, if the air temperature is hot, then the strategy largely is is you you will get warm with the running and you accept that when you hit the water if you're doing a longer swim it, your, your temperature is going to deteriorate a little bit and it's just it's just you know trying to make sure that it doesn't fall too far off if the air temperature is also cold i quite often wear a one or two millimeter neoprene vest like a surfer would wear underneath the swim run suit to add that extra little bit of insulation on your core and maybe things like a neoprene headband over your ears that goes into your swim hat to you know to take the chill off your forehead if the water's really cold the interesting thing about swim run as well though is that it's a pairs race generally there are solo events but the ones i've done have been predominantly pairs races so to an extent the speed that you can swim at is dictated by your partner and what I've found is that if you're the stronger partner, it helps to be tethered to your slightly weaker partner on the longer swims because then you can sit on the front and actually work pretty hard still without dropping them because you're tethered together and that helps you keep your temperature up. If you One mistake I made in a couple of early races was we didn't tether and if my partner was not quite as strong a swimmer, I would end up swimming quite slowly to try and allow them to stay with me and or swimming on their feet and so you can see them but either way you're not expending a lot of energy and that's when you get really really cold and so that's a big mistake to avoid i think that's a great tip yeah and i think even transfers over to other sports you know i can see just got back from a mountain bike stage race where people similarly are racing together right and you, even just with drafting if not tethering um you know you could yeah you certainly... could you definitely got it. Yeah, like with that, you've got to wear more more kit, more clothing, more windproof layers, or whatever. If you're the rider that's working a little bit less hard, you could definitely, obviously, chill off pretty quickly. So yeah, it's something something to think about in those pairs races, which seem to be becoming more popular. Yeah, they're fun, right? Like they do add another sort of dimension to it. It's frustrating, and you get into like little little yeah. fights, and people get grumpy. But it, it it adds a nice element, and it's sort of. I've always had really good bonds, you know, they've been good friends going in, but you know, it's a crazy thing you've done with someone, right? Like it's a really unique experience. Oh, hundred percent. They're, they're, they're one of the things that's really kept me going with sport after, after sort of, I guess, hanging up my boots on the really, you know, individual competitive stuff that the first, one of the first races I did as well as the Otolo swim run was I did the trans Alps running race, which is a pairs race, a st sort of a stage race for running through the Alps in Europe. And I did that with a good friend of mine, Elliot, and it, it was just so good to, to be able to share it with someone else and to, in some ways it, it adds a different pressure, but largely it takes the pressure off because you're, you're working with someone, you're sharing the stories and we still talk about it now. You know, this is like six, seven years later. It's one of the best, it's one of the best things we've ever done. Um, and then I've done, I've done double, I've done, uh, kayak races in a K2, which is a double kayak, you know, where I've done them with my brother. I've done them with Johnny, my business partner and other people. And yeah, it's just fantastic to share these experiences. 
and and makes them a bit more a bit more meaningful and and there's all that great build-up of training together and then talking about it afterwards and yeah it's it's really changed it for me and i think it's a healthy thing yeah yeah really good right i think in, in uh, i'll say this day and age i don't want to feel like that gets overused these days but uh um, yeah uh, it, it's a unique bond with like another human. And I feel like that's, it's just a very good, like I know going in, like I've done one with basically my best friend, uh, but it's something, you know, 2005, I think we did that. And, you know, still we talk about it. Right. And I just was looking at yeah. photos just randomly last night, actually from it. Um, you know, and that's, so that's like over, well over a decade now, right. We're going to 15 years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah that's pretty cool. Situation. Yeah. So I think that's great. Like our listeners, you know, we're a lot of us are people who, you know, maybe we're racing uh, elite or, or, you know, competitively, whatever that meant for us at the level we are. And then and sort of exactly what you're describing. I think that's an amazing little sort of just even we'll call it a tidbit um, for people, you know, just to consider, you know, whether it's whatever. There's all sorts of different the running. I know a lot of those uh, trans Rockies run just happened. And I believe you can do that as a pair. Um, so there's lots of different yeah. ways to do these sort of like group you know adventure racing would be another one which it sounds like you've done a bit of quote-unquote yeah. adventure racing right yeah, yeah i've done, done a bit of that in teams of three and four yeah. um you know incorporating sort of mountain biking and navigation and obstacles and all that kind of stuff and again that's 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 another sort of bit of fun and diversion and takes a bit of recalibration when you're i think when when you first get into that stuff and you're used to just racing very set courses under your own steam at the best pace you can go and everything it, it's it does take a mindset change to actually race sympathetically with your teammates and work together and accept strengths and weaknesses and spend some of the time being one of the stronger ones and leading and, and, and assisting and waiting for people and on the flip side sometimes you know maybe being one of the weaker ones and, and being dragged along or encouraged along and i think it, for me without being too grandiose about it it's good personal development you know because in one thing endurance athletes often can become is relatively selfish um you have to be pretty selfish to put the hours into training it's quite a selfish pursuit in general and actually you know maybe maybe doing it with other people is is a good is a good antidote to some of that especially as you get a bit older yeah yeah and, and unique I, I think in the adventure racing especially but really just over the course of many days you're going to have you know, someone feeling better at a certain point or in, and certainly in adventure racing, someone who's very good at navigating or kayaking isn't as good at running or, or whatever, right? Mm, yeah, it teaches you a lot about communication and that sort of thing because you, you have to you have to communicate and, and work together and have a plan, but just that plan as you're going. Um, I've been racing, the last swim run race that I did this year was in the Isles of Scilly off the UK and I raced with one of my colleagues from Precision Hydration, James, who's much younger than me, um, frankly quite a bit fitter and in a straight line and everything quite a bit faster but we found it that, that actually because I'd got a lot of experience with the racing and he he basically brought a lot of raw performance and fitness to it we were able to play off each other quite nicely and both of us kind of we 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 outperformed what we expected i think because we were able to maximize each other's strengths and weaknesses and whereas we definitely saw other teams around us you know implode and, and not do so well because there was a bit of infighting or a bit of ego and a bit of you know pushing each other at the wrong times and that kind of thing so yeah it's just it's, it's added a new it's added a new dimension to it all for me, which has been great. Um, and I just want to circle back a little bit. You know, when you're talking about kayaking and some of these boat sports, where, like, where did you find the time and energy to go back and sort of, you must have had to learn some of the basics and at least sort of what you need to do this stuff. Like, is that through adventure racing, some of these partners and stuff, you just got, sort of got dragged through it? Or, or how did you go about acquiring that? You know, I, I don't see kayaking yeah. fitting into your your swimming and triathlon sort of background no it it, it didn't and I, I did i had to start from you know ground zero scratch with that and anyone who knows has seen me trying to pick up new physical skills like that will probably attest to the fact that i am you know a, a below average learner when it comes to like new skill sports it takes me forever to to accomplish things but i was lucky in the respect that my my um, uncle 
was a very very good kayaker and a kayak instructor and my cousin his son um, ben brown was actually kayak is a kayaking world champion for marathon paddling a few years ago so i kind of had the links which and, and they were really helpful in helping to identify you know a few basics for me although i didn't live particularly close to them i was able to go paddling with them a few times and start to learn but then i think what made all the difference to me really then was this um, the knee injury that I mentioned I had I had t- a year of like frustrating diagnosis where I couldn't really run or cycle at all I had another year of then not finding a surgeon who could tackle the job that needed doing then getting it done and rehabbing and by, by the time I came out of that process I was so frustrated with not being able to do anything I was still months and years away from being able to run and cycle again properly that I basically decided that the kayaking was going to be the thing and just threw myself at it and and just that became my my hobby at that time and that was a little bit before I've got children now and that was all a little bit pre-children so I did have the luxury of a little bit more time and I just I did what I normally do with these things, which is for a short for a short time, I became basically mildly obsessed with it, and that is what I did. And and I think that now, even looking back at that, and, I, and it's what I did with my swimming when I went to university. I think that a really good way, if you want to learn a new skill or something, is rather than dabble at it, is I'm a big believer in kind of going all in, but 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 for a constrained amount of time. You know, it might be six months or twelve months or whatever to really really get the basics of that new skill embedded and then you can you can back off and incorporate it in amongst now so now i'll occasionally go paddling and my paddling is not at the level that it was but it's not bad because i had that initial like obsessive intense grounding and getting the the basic skills sorted out sure sure i love that i love the using injury to do something else um, and I love the sort of block base, just getting obsessed, right? That could be weather. It could be injury. It could be where yeah. you, where you are, you know, you have to stay with family. So maybe there's a local pool, uh, versus going out on like six hour bike rides. Right. And maybe you just become a swimmer for, you know, a few months and just sort of learn that. I, I think that fits amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I also, I also um, did, although I was, I went down the route of, you know, taking some instruction, but largely a lot of I wouldn't say I was self-taught, but I sort of practiced on my own a lot, basically. Right. But I also I also did go on a couple of really decent courses for some specifics. So where I live, I've got I'm lucky. I live near the sea, and there's a there's a river there. Well, there's two rivers actually that I can paddle on. So I can paddle on flat water, or I can go and paddle in the sea with some waves and with some chop and wind and stuff. So I've got lots of options. But one thing I don't have is fast flowing river water. So like the kind of white water stuff um, that that is necessary in some of the races. So I went I actually went on a course in Sweden for a week and did a specific down river paddling course that I'd found, which was for kind of competent multi-sport athletes to do, but to really upskill their you know, your development in, in white water. And I found doing little things like that really useful as well because I still you know draw on some of the experiences i learned on that course now because you know that's that's one of my most um, intense periods of paddling whitewater that i've that i've had right. so you know picking out times and places where you can go and get the best expertise um but but then being prepared to go away and work on those skills on your own is is a good a good idea as well yeah i think you need both for sure just that like consistent like putting in the reps right but then also yeah I like that you sort of went away for even like an extra focused block with instruction with like specific terrain, right? Like it's almost the, the terrain. Sometimes I, you know, I coach mountain biking skills and sometimes it's, it's actually just finding the right situation, context, uh, environment, right. Is, is mm. almost what you need to get people to. And sometimes it's in the kayaking example, right? Like you need to find that fast flowing water, right? It, it, it's the instruction yeah. will help, but you also just need to put the boat in the water and see what happens. Right. Yeah. Go, go and do it basically yeah i did i do look back at some of the things that i did now and wince a little bit like when i first got a sea kayak i live on uh, on the south coast in the uk and we can see from the beach we can see an island called the isle of Wight, which is about seven miles away on the towards the horizon and i thought to myself you know oh, i'm going to paddle across to there you know as you do because if you're you know if you're if you're an athlete you sort of you see these goals you're like oh i could paddle there and back and say so on. having no idea about currents and wind and waves and all right. that kind of stuff and ended up i ended up like capsizing falling out getting washed up onto the shore five miles away having to ditch my boat and run all the way back in bare feet to get my 
car to go and pick the boat up and looking back at it now and i had none of the right equipment none of the right clothing and, I, and there were definitely some things which i did which I, I look at and go probably not the wisest i got away with that you know and i think that's where that's where sometimes you have to be careful in in just throwing yourself at new things right. but at the same time you know part of me also thinks well you know it's also how you learn so you gotta you gotta you sometimes you gotta risk assess as you go and hopefully i think as i got older my risk assessment might have got a bit a bit better that's yeah, that's probably that's one of the outcomes a little bit of instruction early right because I, I think that's where even you say now you don't paddle as much but you can still go back and you know you sort of understand the equipment you understand like the things that don't make sense you understand you know just the basic mechanics and technique yeah um, and sometimes that's where like that early instruction can sort of be like hey you just don't go into open water alone that's not a thing you do and these are this is, yeah. the, gear, this is the gear you need for safety you know if you have this you know life jacket and so on um you know then you're going to be just in a better shape and then you can just go mm. and sort of just like experiment but at least you're you know in the right area at least yeah 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 no i realize now looking back at that my ignorance was like pretty complete and i would not have attempted that knowing what i know now but well, i guess <laughs> ignorance is bliss right yeah you got, exactly you yeah. yeah um you mentioned family so we may as well go there uh and then we'll get yeah. into a bit of hydration stuff because i know everyone's always interested in, in cramping and hydration so we'll tease that uh but yeah you mentioned now you're a family man you got that and you're still you know going after this swim run and stuff like that so um you know, where do you fit that, that in? You know, you're also doing, you have this business, uh, you're, you're running as well. It, it sounds busy. It is, it is pretty, it is pretty busy. Um, I've, I've, I've basically found a level for me that I think, that I think works with the sport and training at the moment anyway. So my kids are two and a half and five and a half. So they're still, they're at a really active and interesting age and keep me and my wife really busy. Um, you know, uh, so basically for me training time is and with running the business as well training time is relatively low on the hierarchy of stuff that needs to get done so i've i often i log all of my training now because out, mainly out of interest to see how much i'm doing and it seems to average on about four to five hours a week in general um so i have to make it count and i often i basically will swim two or three times a week on average and i'll run three or four times a week usually and that's a and if i can get that in that keeps me ticking over and i try to i try to do any a fair amount of quality over quantity training not because i'm not a believer in doing bigger mileages but because i simply don't have the capacity to and and very occasionally i'll get out and do long sessions you know sort of but even these days a long session for me would be a two-hour run um, not like it used to be when I used to go out and do six or seven hours on the bike followed by a two hour run you know it's, it, it would be just just doing a you know a 30k or you know 18 mile run is is a really long day for me at the moment and what I found is that although that's definitely not perfect these swim run races last anywhere between about four and eight hours or, or nine hours if it's the the big one the world championships and it's not optimal to train like I do but it's good enough to get me round and make me feel like I can be competitive to a level that I'm happy with. So that's, that's typically what a training week, you know, revolves around for me at the moment. And I tend to get out early in the morning. If my training isn't done before about 7.30 AM, then it probably isn't going to happen. So it has to happen before then. Yeah. There's a lot of men mental fatigue and things that sort of yeah. pop up that weren't supposed to pop up, right? It's hundred percent. Yeah. Cause I, I get sometimes, uh, my kids go to bed at around 7 seven thirty. they can be asleep before 8 p.m so theoretically if i had the energy and time i could get out and maybe sneak another run in or something but i could count the number of times on one hand that that's happened in the last two or three years because i just you know i just need to recover and and actually i've i've really the, the sleep deprivation that comes with having kids has been a big part of what's made me prioritize getting even more sleep than i used to yeah. because i realize just how much of a killer that is and i see that with a lot of athletes you know that that we come across that sleep def definitely gets eroded as your life gets busier and if you're trying to perform and train and stuff it's i think it's a real false economy actually and mm -hmm. it's something i've become quite um some of i've become really quite you know structured about with my own life now is getting to bed early and getting plenty of sleep yeah it's so linked to just how you feel well control or well powered that sort of stuff right and, and it sort of yeah. snowballs into everything you know even glucose control i would imagine you can even talk 
probably yeah. it links into this hydration and, and electrolyte balance in, in some ways mm. as well. Yeah, I mean, for sure, on the on the nutrition side, you, you, you know, I know from personal experience, but also from all the science or the reading that you basically just make horrendous nutritional decisions when you're sleep deprived you know when i'm when i'm traveling because i go to the u.s fairly frequently from the uk and suffer pretty badly with jet lag sometimes when i'm over there and and the the draw of like eating basically junk food is almost unstoppable when you're just in that sleep deprived state your body just craves all this crazy junk and and it's not good in the long run you know you have to try and you know recognize it and, and deal with it and yeah that's that's been a real challenge yeah, and changing that that mindset of uh, you know four to five hours of training is is amazing and great, especially when it's in the background of you know you're controlling stress, you're getting in that valuable time with the family, um, and then prioritizing sleep. Like, is that better than squeaking, you know, eking out those eight eight to ten hours? Right? Are you yeah. you know a happier, healthier, leaner? Um, you know, all these things. You know, well rested, yeah. motivated uh, on the start line uh, when you come to these races, right? And now. You know, are you in much better shape uh, versus the person who's like really squeezed out eight hours, but is again, sleep deprived, maybe, you know, body composition, not happy, family's mad at them, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think you, I think it's all part of the bigger picture, isn't it? And you have to decide there are times when you need to push on a bit and maybe squeeze that extra session in or whatever. But I would say that they're less frequent than most people reckon. I had a really interesting experience earlier this year with the race I mentioned before. When I raced with James at the Silly Isles, I was traveling in the US about three or four weeks before the race. So I was trying, and, and often what I'll try and do when I'm traveling in the US is actually that's when I can squeeze a little bit more training in, ironically, because I've not got the family around if I'm traveling on business. And I can I can do a few extra sessions or a bit of a longer run here and there, and I and I and looking back I did something kind of stupid because I, I flew into New York and I went for a really good run and I ran about 15 miles on the the morning after I'd I'd got in and and got to my hotel and then I, that day I had my meetings and then that day I flew across across the US to Portland Oregon and I did. Uh, I had some meetings out and I went for a really good long like 20 mile trail run in the forest around Portland and then the next morning I got up and did a, a hard swimming set with the the local swimming group there and I thought this is going great I'm smashing all this training in I'm getting everything done then I flew down to LA for some more meetings and then I woke up that night with like sweats and shivers and cold and bang and I'd gone down hard with the flu and right. I was I was really ill, and when people say, you know, some people say, oh, I got the flu. I I hadn't had a flu like this for ten or fifteen years. It was so bad that I basically um, I, I went to a clinic, got got a swab test to make sure it was the flu and not something else like Lyme's disease or whatever from being bitten in the in the woods. And then and then I I just locked myself in a hotel room for like four days, and oh, I was no. totally, you know, I was and 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 ended up cancelling a load of stuff, flying home, being ill, being laid up for another you know eight or ten days i was really really out of sorts and i think it was a combination of obviously i'd picked up the virus but i'd pushed my body pretty hard on jet lag you know not a lot of sleep having seeing this like opportunity to get some more extra training in and, and going for it and i just went for it too hard and just ran myself into the ground right but then maybe observing like a, an easy day you know exactly when you, when you yeah. first got in and making sure you got that first day of sleep and stuff maybe yeah just just being sensible but then what was really really interesting was i was i was so so badly and when i got home there was no talk of training and i said to james when i got back you know i'm really sorry but i think you know this race is only two days or two weeks or 10 days out or whatever it is now i'm i think you know i think you're gonna have to find another partner but you know and so he started asking around and then i started feeling my way back and it was only about five or six days out from the race that i actually started doing a little bit of light exercise again and thought mm, i feel feel pretty good and i'd been sleeping like 16 hours a day to try and recover from this bug uh, and then i started to come good and then on the wednesday before i said you know what i think I'm in for this and he hadn't got someone else to race. So we went and did it. And I felt it's one of the, some of the strongest I've felt. We raced for five hours and I felt strongest I've felt for years in that particular race. And, and I'm sort of convinced that part of it was because I just had such a long taper and big rest into it, um, which I never would normally have done. I would never have tapered that aggressively. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's talking to other athletes, I don't know if you've had any experiences like that, but I would never have, uh, that was an enforced rest. I wouldn't have chosen to take that time off 
but having done so it certainly didn't do anything to diminish my performance in that in that race it seemed actually to give me more energy yeah. uh, which was a big learning lesson yeah, I mean, I think you, you hear that often, right? Like it's, especially for the endurance athletes, right? We just like that feeling of being, you know, tired, that low grade fatigue. Mm. Runners, especially, right? Like there's always just this pounding. Um, and then it's amazing what, you know, you, you get recovered and your body gets on top of things. And, uh, you know, again, you're just so amped to be out, right? You don't have yeah. that e- mental fatigue, I think we often overlook as well. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to lead us down, you know, I want to make sure we get onto hydration and cramping. Like what, how did you, like, did you have problems here? It sounds like you've had all these amazing events and stuff over your career, but you've had some adversity uh, as far as cramping goes. Definitely. I, I really, really suffered badly with cramping most of my younger athletic life. I would always, I would often cramp, especially when it was hot. And where it really was hammered home to me was when I, I spent a, a lot of time trying to qualify for Kona for the Ironman in the early 2000s and when I did I went there and basically fell apart with cramps and issues on the course and it was it was it was horrible and it was really soul destroying at the time and the the shorter version of that longer story is that a, a doctor friend of mine had already observed that I have a high sweat rate this is pretty obvious to anyone who knows me when I go training my clothes are basically drenched with sweat um at, at short in a short amount of time and he also noticed that he could see a lot of salt on my skin and clothing when i raced and he said we should get a sweat test done and even as a physiologist i didn't really know what that entailed but i had a sweat test done, which told me that the sweat the salt composition of my sweat was unusually high i was in the top few percent of what a normal person would lose um and and this this was interesting and then the, the friend of mine who's a doctor said you know basically tried we, we tried taking more salt in races and it was like night and day the, the difference it made to me was unbelievable before i'd maybe supplemented small amounts of electrolytes but drunk a lot of fluid because i was aware of my high sweat rate and and what we figured out was i'd basically been causing myself to become hyponatremic which is where you dilute the salt levels in your blood and in your body to such an extent that you start to get all sorts of um, dysfunction and it can actually be quite dangerous people can die from hyponatremia and people do die every year unfortunately in marathons and ironmans and stuff through essentially over drinking plain water or low sodium fluids and not replacing enough of the salt that they're losing in their sweat uh, and that led me down this track of then becoming quite interested in this as a as I transitioned out of you know full time sport being my main thing into working with athletes, coaching athletes, working as a sports scientist. We started sweat testing people and trying to individualise hydration. And over the course of a number of years, that morphed into what is now the company Precision Hydration, and we're you know working with athletes across all around the world in all sorts of different sports at every level basically to try to help them sort out their individual hydration needs and and it was mainly born out of my own struggles in that space yeah it sounds like something you know it's a common thing and it seems like people are often on one side of the fence or not in that they either just don't know cramps they've never had them or or it's just like the bane of their existence yeah um and, yeah. and do you think do you think a lot of times it ends up being hydration or is it like I've always described it as like a lot of people it's like it's happening at like the most extreme part of the race they've sort of exceeded um, you know they're training maybe they're doing more hills in the race than they're used to um, is there sort of multi cause still in your in your viewpoint hundred percent yeah I think cramping is is really not well understood and it's one of those topics in sports science that is incredibly polarizing and you talk to different people and you'll get very, very different adamant opinions. And my problem with that is that this isn't a, this isn't a question of a straightforward question of is cramping caused by electrolyte sodium imbalance or not. It's like there's too much evidence to support the fact that cramping to a degree or certain types of cramping, often the type that happens late on in endurance sport is 
influenced and and potentially affected by hydration status um right. be that you know sodium depletion a fluid overload fluid depletion whatever there's there's something in that and we know and there's there's a plausible if not a direct model there's plausible theories around that because sodium and fluid balance and and electrolytes are involved in muscle contraction of impulses so in all of the stuff that is basically malfunctioning when you get a muscle cramp electrolytes play a role um interestingly as well if you look at if you look across disciplines if you look at um cystic fibrosis patients so cf is a genetic disease and it, it results in people losing abnormally high amounts of salt in their sweat and one of the ways that physicians often start to diagnose people with cf later in life if they're not diagnosed as children is that they get a lot of muscle cramps because they lose so much salt so there are there's definitely something in the fact that sodium balance and, and electrolyte replacement is influential in muscle cramping for me it was personally it was like night and day if i took the right amount of salts i would if if not um, get rid of my cramping minimize it to a huge extent compared with not supplementing on the other side like you were saying fatigue asking muscles to do things they're not used to you know cramps that happen at times when there's no significant fluid and electrolyte loss can't be explained by that same theory so there needs to be another theory and i think that you know there are other theories that are emerging around um, electrical misfiring of the muscles and you, and you see these products that look at that, that try to stimulate nerves in the mouth to to combat that and and basically it's one of those areas where you know, we don't have all the answers in terms of though the prevalence of it in, and the, the relevance of electrolyte imbalance and cramping in endurance sport, whenever we survey people to see what kind of effect um, taking stronger electrolyte supplements in the right way has on their performance, we see something between a 70 and 80% positive impact of, of getting that, that aspect of your preparation right. So for me, it's a significant part of it if it's not the whole answer. Right. Right. And is there, there's not really a downside. Like I've ne- uh, in all these arguments and like you say, polarizing debates, which I'm never sure why it needs to be so polarized, but, um, is there like, if someone's having cramps and they're getting it at whatever point during the event, I don't see a huge downside. Like it's not like, Oh, I took too much salt and I had even like the cramps just like were paralyzing, right? Like does this yeah. happen? Is there a, a side effects that you can, it, I think in, in, in general terms, no. That if you use electrolyte supplements intelligently, then taking relatively high doses of them is is not is not particularly a problem because largely you tend to wee out you know anything extra than what you need. That said, I, you I always feel like, and it's sensible to caveat that statement with the fact that when you're telling athletes that you know, oh, it's not it's not possible to take too much of something. Some athletes will will go a very long way towards taking loads and loads of stuff. So we've written a really detailed blog on cramping. Actually, it's one of the most it's one of the things that people hit on read on our website most frequently. So we could maybe link to it in the. Yep. in the show notes but but um in essence what we suggest is that you know a high dose it to, to get to get your head wrapped around you know what a high or low dose of electrolytes is you know um we talk if we talk in milligrams per liter uh, most sports drinks have around four or five hundred milligrams of sodium per liter so if you're on a if you're on a a run course in Ironman you've got some cramping and you pick up a like a Gatorade type drink or something it will usually have four or five hundred milligrams of sodium per liter which in our in, in our eyes is a low sodium dose we we have a product called ph 1500 which which as the name suggests has 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter which so it's three times the strength of a regular sports drink and that's the kind of a high dose to which there are basically you know no no downsides to taking it and trying it and if that helps alleviate those cramps then you could be onto something what we wouldn't suggest is taking 10 times that amount or something ridiculous like that drinking that like all day every day exactly this is like i I did the sweat test you have on the website which we'll also link to and so it recommended it i'm an elite you know i race at a high level often hot weather so it recommended that for sort of like maybe a loading beforehand and then actually the thousand because i don't have sweaty marks so i think during the race my races are generally shorter too yeah uh, it, it recommended the thousand 
Yeah. Uh, and then after a 15. So I'm sort of in the middle there, maybe not quite as high as you, but as just sort of an example for people. Um, yeah. And I think that's where what it comes down to is that the whole thing around, I mean, we talk about cramping being a, a polarizing topic, but even more broadly, I think hydration, electrolyte supplementation, these are all really confused and polarized topics in the world of sports science. You, know, you, you literally can talk to 10 different people and get 10 different answers and and what you'll find is that in in the hydration and electrolyte supplementation space there's there are camps like the the camps from you know gatorade and and the, the sports science institute where where sort of electrolytes and hydration and drinking lots and everything is if if you read it superficially the message is that that is the answer to all your problems as an athlete you know that is what you need to do on the other side you've got people like tim noakes from south africa and uh, an increasing amount of other researchers who are looking at that research again that's not all right actually you don't need to worry too much about hydration and electrolyte supplementation and it's not worth doing it's all just hype from the sports drink industry and then what you find is that that actually neither of those groups are probably entirely right the truth resides somewhere in the gray area in the middle and what's really important is the truth resides around what works for you as an individual because definitely you know if you're a 5k runner who's running predominantly in cool conditions and doesn't have a particularly high sweat rate then the sports drink industry has relatively little to offer you frankly you know if you are an Ironman athlete competing in Kona who's pushing his body or her body to do eight, nine, ten hours and be the best you can be, then I think that ignoring what the sports drink industry has to offer in terms of, you know, supplementation with carbohydrates, electrolytes, fluids, etc., is is just is silly. You know, there's a lot right. of benefit to gain from it. But but there's not the problem with that kind of answer is there's not like a clean and simple, oh, okay, do sports drink are sports drinks necessary? Right. You know, it, it's 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 really and that and that argument's become quite it's been become quite uh, intense. It's become quite like we keep saying polarized and people is framed all wrong. It shouldn't be the argument. Shouldn't be do do we need hydration advice and supplements and the kind of stuff that the, the, the hydration industry, if you like, does, or do we just need to not worry about it and just drink water when we're thirsty? You know, it's kind of there's a place for both. And, right. and depending on what you do and what your individual needs are, if I followed the advice only to drink water when I'm thirsty, doing long distance endurance events, I would collapse pretty quickly. Right. Um, you know, but what do I drink mostly on a day to day basis when I'm only doing four or five hours a week? Basically water. You right. know, I'll, I'll use this, the supplements when I'm doing the long and hard sessions or trying to recover or before a race, that kind of thing. It's um, it's trying to it's trying to u- use them intelligently. Yeah, and that, that there's several layers of intricacy there, right? Because there's, um, you know, you'll have these studies where they present like this average response rate. Um, you know, we don't give them electrolytes, and on average, they did okay in this like maybe short distance run. Well, the the actual goal in this thing was a short distance thing, but then also yeah. two of the people maybe got faster using sodium. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, well, how do what happened with those people? Like those people yeah. probably should be doing sodium then. It's a, it's a uh, fantastic point because when you look at these studies, like you say, reporting the averages is it's like um, I think there's, there's a famous one in in statistics where they talk about the guy who's got his head in the freezer and his feet in the oven but on average he's fine you know <laughs> and and it's like okay well we're in we're really interested in those outliers i'm really really interested in those outliers because i am one um you know and i know that if if it involves long hot sweaty exercise you know of a of a decent duration at decent intensity i'm a guy who benefits from aggressive sodium and fluid supplementation because i lose it at a high rate but what I don't want to be and what we've tried not to be as a company is someone who's that's trying to promote that as the message which is relevant to everybody. You know, what's relevant to everyone is figuring out what your individual needs are. So things like the tool on our website, the online sweat test, the the actual sweat test we do where we can take a sweat sample from you and measure it and look at the composition and the products that come in multi-strengths are all part of a wider toolkit to enable you to you know, play around with your individual needs and figure it out and let leave it to the scientists to argue about their dogmatic, you know, positions at one end of the extreme or the other. Um, and actually, in reality, that's what a lot, of, a lot of athletes are doing because although athletes read a lot of this sort of hyperbole in the press about, you know, 
knocking sports drinks or promoting them most people seem to take a more individualized and intelligent approach to it i just think that that messaging is unhelpful because it it gives people uncertainty and pulls them in different directions yeah it's amazing you know i've always sort of if i'm drinking a lot of water big long event then i've sort of just like done it um just some electrolytes in there yeah Um, and again i've never had a huge problem with cramping but done that but there was a guy i was just at a stage race and he was having just a horrible time with it and i think he was a little on the underprepared but they were long days it was sort of hot and he sort of asked me about it uh, because i had done sort of a q a coaching thing the the night before at this at this race and i was like i mean have you tried putting you know some sodium or tried some electrolytes in there and he's like no I didn't even yeah. know. And I was like, dude, just try that today. Dude. So I had a great day. I don't know if it was like mental or the day was different or, yeah. or what, but um, you know, sometimes it's, it's just, you know, people are so out of their normal. Right. And it's, well, this is getting into like the extremes of exercise here. Right. And, and you're going to have to look at some of this supplementation, you know, which may be counter to, you know, maybe someone's on like a, you know, very whole foods type diet and, and they don't want to take supplements, but sometimes these, endurance events like iron man i always say like you know iron man is not paleo right like the, no. the, ca- the caveman was not doing these excessive endurance sports right and so sometimes we have to step outside of that everyday nutrition strategy uh, to do this extreme stuff yeah it's, it's a really interesting point because I, I agree with you entirely on that i think that you know the 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 sort of our physiology is based on evolution and and we would have we would or evolutionary pressures that and we would have done a fair amount of sort of in inverted commas endurance type exercise if we were hunter gathering and that kind of thing but what it wouldn't have been was pushing your heart rate up to 160 170 beats a minute for eight hours in the pursuit of maximal performance for that length of time you know we we definitely go above and beyond what we're sort of designed to do when we do these really really long hard and hot endurance events the fact that we can cope with them is is remarkable you know based on how other animals would would or wouldn't be able to push themselves that hard in the heat but but the sort of the demands that that places on you mean that actually just just you know doing what our ancestor did and just yeah drink yeah living on a paleo diet and drinking some water is not going to be compatible with eking out top performance that's for sure I'm wondering, you know, we have a lot of parents that listen to this. You mentioned, you know, football slash soccer. Uh, yeah. You know, do you have any advice for parents with kids? You know, you have kids. They're probably maybe doing soccer or team sports or something. Um, you know, are they, you know, what are your feelings on the, the Gatorade, the electrolyte, the sports drinks for kids who are, you know, doing 40 minutes of, of soccer in the uh, on the pitch, as you guys say? Yeah, I think I think for, for youngsters, for the, and I, it's hard to say what, what you know, I guess pre-adolescence is probably the best way to describe them. I would say largely my take on that, and this is what I do as a parent, is I just make sure that the kids have got water or juice or something that they are comfortable to drink available when they're at playing sport or outside running around, in, hot, in especially in hot weather and whatnot, and let them, you know, they, they do a great job on, on you know, drinking when they're thirsty, basically, and topping themselves up. Uh, as long as ki- as long as kids have got availability of fluids, they're unlikely to run themselves into serious problems because they don't sweat a huge amount pre-adolescence, you know, not compared with adults, and their drive to drink and their thirst instinct will will make them top up. And I and I watch my kids like that. And some days it's funny you see them and they basically have a kind of a drinking day when they drink quite a bit, and other days right. they might not. But within forty eight hours or whatever, they they basically self correct and keep keep themselves topped up so i think just making stuff available and not making it overly technical is important for kids you know just let them let them be guided by what what they want to do as they start to get older and be, get into adolescence and start to sweat more and start to engage in more adult length and intensity of practices and that that's when potentially looking at you know sports drinks to set, to replace some of what they're losing in sweat or provide them with more energy can be useful but I don't think they should be viewed as essential or a magic bullet for anything. You know, you've got to use them in a targeted way. You know, we, where, where I'm starting to gain more experience, obviously in the UK, we, we have some hot days in the summer, but those hot days aren't particularly hot by um, standards around the world. You know, where I get an eye opener is going to the southern states of the US in the summer and watching college football kids practicing for NCAA, you know, Division One college football 
who are really working hard for hours at a time in lots of gear in incredible hot conditions and losing liters and liters or gallons of sweat and that's where they often need a more a far more educationally proactive approach to to getting their hydration right because they are they are turning over a huge amount of fluid each day and if they don't stay on top of that that can lead them into problems and that's the kind of area where getting more technical and 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 using more products might be more appropriate i think that's a great answer yeah andy we've we've covered so much ground today i uh you know you have so much experience all around so um i've greatly enjoyed this conversation it's gone by really quickly but i've almost taken up an hour of your time no you're busy so i'm gonna let you go is there anything you know as far as social media can people follow you yeah they can um we're precisionhydration.com is the url for the business and we're instagram and uh, facebook etc on at precision hydration uh, it's a bit different on twitter we're at the sweat experts so they can follow us on or, or find out on those the best way though if people want to get in touch with us if they've heard something is think oh, i want to ask these guys a question we're very geared up to that and you just email us at hello at precision hydration.com and there's myself and james and a couple of other guys in the office who are sort of ready and waiting to try and help athletes if they've got hydration questions you can do the online sweat test and I also believe we've set up a, a code. If anyone wants to try any of our products, you can use the code Consumer Athlete, which is all capitals, and get, um, I believe it's 15% off yep. uh, an order of um, products on the website. So feel free to give that a try as well. Perfect. Yeah. And that's uh, to the end of September 2019, which is very gracious. Thank you for that. Um, no and thank you for your time. No, thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed chatting, Peter. It's awesome. been great. Awesome. All right, Andy. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out WideAnglePodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind-the-scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.